Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be here. I'm honored. I'm glad to have my wife, Linda, here and also joined today by our youngest daughter, Brittany, and her husband, Jackson. And it's been, as indicated, an intense week. Started off on Wednesday meeting with the staff, followed on Thursday with meeting the area minister, Bill Gunther, and yesterday morning and this morning. Um, I'm sure this would never be true of you, but it is true of me. I have on occasion been guilty of skimming. By skimming, I mean reading something by just having my eyes gloss over the text and not absorbing the content. For me, it started in high school when I would skim the assigned book the, uh, the, assigned book the night before exam. And I have been guilty of scanning over the instructions before trying to assemble something, even skimming on emails on occasion. Every once in a while, skimming and scanning catches up with you. When you only skim a book the night before an exam, you can't be overly disappointed when you get a poor grade. When you skim on reading the directions, sometimes it requires you to take it all apart after you fail to complete a necessary step. Leftover pieces like bolts and nuts are not usually a good sign. I discovered on Mother's Day last year that skimming Mother's Day cards is not a good idea. On the Saturday, I went over to the superstore to pick up some items for a Mother's Day brunch our family was putting, on to, putting together for Linda, along with a Mother's Day card. And when I got home, I had realized I had forgotten to grab a card. I didn't have the, within me to kind of go back out there, and so I made a decision that uh, on the next day, on the Sunday, on my way home from church, I would stop and, and pick up a card. Sunday comes... I go and speak at the church of a previous church. I stop by the London Drugs over at Grasslands. I walk in to discover that at 12.05 on Mother's Day, the cards are very picked over. Just want to let you know if you need to do that. Not a good time. It looked like vultures had come and decimated the racks. Only three cards remained on the entire Mother's Day card rack. A quick, quick scan of the contents of the first two indicated that they would not be suitable. The third one looked like it had potential. It was written in the singular, but I thought, you know what? With a little bit of pen, I could pluralize it and make it work. So I quickly read through the cover, and when I opened it, it looked like all the key phrases that I needed were inside. I thought, well, I'll run with it. Went home, and I pluralized the entire card. But I, again, had not read it in its entirety, nor did I sign it. And so we had the brunch, and after brunch, I can remember keeping our granddaughter entertained while Linda read her cards and opened her gifts. And then she started to read the card from me. Everything was fine. I'm just kind of nodding that this is all going to work. Until she gets to the final line of the card, which reads, Happy First Mother's Day together. <laughs> At that particular point, uh, there was a silence in the room followed by a gasp, and I had no choice but to fess up and to acknowledge that I hadn't really read the card. 
Now, as those words were coming out of my mouth, it was dawning on me that my excuse was just as terrible as the card I had chosen. Needless to say, with Mother's Day happening next Sunday, I've already purchased my Mother's Day card for my wife. And yes, I have read it over twice. Today, as part of a teaching time, I have the opportunity to continue in the series that you've been doing on the book of Acts. And if this is your first installment in this series, let me provide you with a brief context. The book of Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And then you may already be familiar with the four biographies of Jesus' life that are recorded for us in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the sequel, Dr. Luke, a physician, records the events that transpired following the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It opens up in chapter 1, verse 8, with the last recorded words of Jesus, which it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the book of Acts, if you've been following along, goes through that kind of sequence. So in chapters 1 to 7, the focus is on events that happen in Jerusalem. Then in chapters 8 through 12, it expands to Judea and Samaria to the north. And now we come to the part in the story, the larger story of the book of Acts, which it begins to go beyond those boundaries. Now, it's critical to remember when you're reading the Bible, the Bible contains two stories. It records for us the redemptive history of, of God, but the story is told in terms of an, an upper story and a lower story. The upper story tells us the big picture, the grand narrative of God unfolding throughout history. The lower story contains the twists and turns that transpire in people's lives. Both are important. Without the lens of the upper story, the lower story seems out of focus and perplexing. And if we make our through the way through the book of Acts, it's mindful to keep hold on to the temporal, the kind of easy scene events, and the not-so-obvious-yet-truly-eternal realities. Today we come to Acts chapter 14. We're going to begin by looking at the lower story, and then we'll transition to the upper story, and then we'll finish off by looking at our story. The events that unfold in this chapter take place in three ancient cities— and in order to appreciate um, what's happening here, I'm just going to put that map up if we could. Now, Paul engages in three missionary journeys, and this particular map is going to record the cities that he does on his second missionary journey. And um, you might look at it and say, well, that kind of the kind of map that you see if you're arranging for a bus tour <laughs> through that, that particular region, here's all the cities that you would kind of stop, stop at. But the three uh, cities that we're going to look at are going to be just centralized right in this particular area, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, okay? Now, I highlight that because just put it in terms of his, some, give you some geographical uh, reference points so we can understand what's happening in these three ancient cities. To the bottom, the larger body of water is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the upper part is the Black Sea. 
I'm going to move in that particular direction for a second. Now, the Black Sea, you see the southern shore of the Black Sea. If you were to flip over to the north shore of that sea is the southern port portion of the country of Ukraine. Now, it's possible to be able to, the lowest, the highest point in terms of we're near Pontus over to the lower part, the next map, Crimea Peninsula down here is about 300 kilometers across the Black Sea. And so we're talking approximately 800 kilometers from those three ancient cities to what is happening in, or, and unfolding in the country of Ukraine. I'm going to just touch on this particular map for just three points. One is the obvious part. In the last 70 days, if you watch the news, you'll understand the significance of Crimea in terms of it hits the news every night of the Russian invasion being able to, you know, move in that particular direction. So that's the current events. Historically, a little bit north, south of Kiev and, and north of Crimea is where there was a large contingent of Mennonite colonies that were formed. And there was the largest part of the Mennonites that formed early on was in that particular region. Approximately 30,000 Mennonites in various colonies were there. Now, it's also significant for this church is because there was a spiritual movement that took place amongst those Mennonites. And you could probably guess what the name of that spiritual movement is. If you said Mennonite brethren, you would be correct because this is the birthplace of the Mennonite brethren in Ukraine. Now, I have a friend of mine here in the city. His grandfather was born in that particular region, came here as a young child. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's not people here who have relatives who were born in that region of the world. But I also highlight on a personal note, just to help so you can understand a little bit of my world. So I have a daughter-in-law who is from Ukraine, and she would be located in the city approximately here, just above the R Romania. And so um, she is, that's where she is from. She's parents live there. Her brother and his wife live there. And despite the conflict, they are feeling uncomfortable. Her parents are feeling uncomfortable in leaving there because they don't want to leave their son who is of military age behind. And so they are choosing to stay there. And I just highlight that because that's a little bit of our story in terms of being able to understand um, what's happening in my particular world. If her parents were ever to flee the region of Ukraine in which they currently are at, the closest border would be the Romanian border, about 300 kilometers away. And so let's go back down, and we're back into Acts chapter 14. We're about 800 kilometers away. That'd be about the distance from Regina to Calgary. And here are the events that happen there. It tells us in verse 1, as was read earlier at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. So they're sent out by missionary, as missionaries to go from Antioch, to go to this particular region, and they saw up at Iconium. And they, their tradition was to kind of go, the first place they would go to would be the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Jewish synagogue was important here because this was the place where Jews went to worship. And uh, they would read the scripture, they would debate. And so while there might be some similarities with churches, 
Churches, churches typically have people who are, who are believers in Jesus Christ. Synagogues were people who did not. They have people who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so this is where Paul and Barnabas first go. And this is their strategy in many of the cities they went to. About the end of the first century, however, the Jewish synagogues closed the doors to Christians coming in and engaging in debate about Jesus being the way. And so this is early, early on. But the Jews there, it tells us in verse 2, refused to believe and stirred other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And this created some tension because some were with the Jews, others were with the disciples. And so in response, it tells us in verse 5, there was a, a, a plot together with the Jews and Gentiles to mistreat them. They took him outside and... Um, they, and uh, then they made their way to Lystra and Derby. And there in Lystra, they meet a man who was lame, who had been that way from birth, had never walked. And he listened to Paul as he was speaking, and as a response, Paul said, stand to your feet, and he jumped up and began to walk. The response of the people here is, is, is quite interesting, because those who were watching these events transpire were in, in, in awe and the response was to conclude that Paul and Barnabas were the kind of the embodiment of the Greek gods of Zeus and Hermes. And, and so they, they began to, in response, they said, verse 11, they, they, they shouted in their dialect, the gods have come down to us in human form. Even the priests of the temple there wanted to be able to offer sacrifices. Now, in our postmodern world, we, would find it, we find it hard to conceive that people might think this way. But I was struck by a comment last Sunday by one of the missionary partners here, Masama Giesbrick. Masama, born and raised in Japan, provided for us a context of religion in Japan. And she explained that up until 1946, the people of Japan believed that the emperor was of divine lineage. 1946, that's not that long ago, when the emperor finally acknowledged, I'm only human after all, okay? And so we can, we can begin to appreciate how people in the first century may have viewed Paul and Barnabas as being the embodiment of two Greek gods. And they rose in front of the crowds and say, hey, we hate to burst your bubble, but we're just humans after all. And so that's what Paul and, and Barnabas say to those who want to be able to offer them sacrifices. He said, we're not here for you to offer sacrifices to us. We're here as messengers to proclaim good news to you. And so in response, they said in verse 15, why are you doing this? We're only human. We're only bringing the good news. And we wanted to be able to communicate to all nations. Now, that's the, the events that transpire on the lower story. It ends up that particular section later on in that particular chapter in verse 27. 
It said that, that arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Opened a door of faith. Now, that's the lower story that transpires here. The upper story is just as significant because as we looked at earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is the recognition that the proclamation of the gospel was going to first start in Jerusalem, and then it was going to expand to Judea and Samaria, and then it was going to be able to cross over ethnic and geographical boundaries. Remember what the angels said when the Christmas narrative, I bring good news, which will be for all in essence, the upper story is this. This is for everyone. This is not driven for just the nation of Israel. This is not just for, for people who are of a Jewish descent as being the Jewish, of, of being the chosen people. This is a recognition that this is for everyone, regardless of, of their race, whether of their ethnic background, regardless of their choices in life. This is the good news that is for everyone. Every segment of society, the offer of God's mercy and grace is for them. It's also for you. But when we begin to take the story a little bit further and recognizing, yes, there is the lower story, there is the upper story, but there is also our story. The text closes that section. He had opened a door of faith. Doors. Think about it. We walk through doors every single day. But have you ever stopped to consider which doors you're opening and which doors you're closing? And metaphorically, what do those doors represent? Are you going through the right doors? Are you closing doors on experiences God has planned for you? You know, a door is defined as a means of entry or access, allowing us to move from one environment to another. And in the physical sense, we understand that. From front doors to garage doors, from office doors to back doors, we are continually moving from one place to another. We are confronted with doors every day. And when it comes to life, there are doors that, that we consciously open and close as well. And those doors can have serious repercussions or abundant rewards, depending on what we do with them. The image of the door for many of us, is a picture of opportunity. The gospel from this particular point on will spread around the world because God opens doors. It happens in the most amazing places. How? Because God can, because only God can open a door to the human heart. And many of us in this room have shared this experience. When you go through open doors with God, who changes most of all? We do. This is not something we do in place of seeking spiritual transformation for ourselves. It's very important that we understand that. Transformation is at the very heart of why this church exists. In order to be transformed, among other things, people need to say yes 
to the mission from God that is oftentimes too big to be able to be accomplished on one's own power. The adventure, the movement of an open door with God will drive us many times to more prayer, greater dependence upon him, to deeper learning, to greater joy than living in, in the, comfort, the comfort zones of our lives ever will. And sometimes, you know, churches will say, well, let's wait until we're spiritually mature first, and then we can focus on our mission. How long do you think they'll wait? They'll wait forever. Because spiritual maturity never comes apart, comes apart from spiritual mission. Now, in terms of understanding the open doors that come our way, one would wonder... Why do that? Why as a church would we want to be able to enter into the open doors that God makes available to us? Because let's face it, risk, change can be unsettling. I, I know in a world that's already seemed so chaotic, it it's, can be tempting at times to think, you know, I, I want to have a church that's an oasis against change where I know it will always feel the same. And I get that. But this is a church and this is a denomination that has in its DNA a desire to be a catalyst for positive change both locally and globally. That's who Parliament Community Church is all about. You might have a little bit of pushback in your mind and say, but doesn't this church already have enough people? Look around, it's a pretty sizable congregation and, and not everybody's returned yet from, from COVID. And, and, and I, let me kind of answer it in kind of this way, if you would. I know it's very unusual when someone who is speaking in church would invite you to take out your phone. But I'm going to invite you to do that. Take out your phone if you don't have a phone. I'm sure you have a wallet. And don't worry, I'm not asking you for an offering here this morning. Just take out either your phone or your wallet. And what I want you to do in terms of looking at that is I want you to find a picture of someone who's important to you. That may be your entire family. That might be your fiance. That might be the, your niece and nephew. It may be the tribe that you kind of hang with on a regular basis. And I want you to be able to take that picture. And I just want you to kind of turn to the person beside you and show them. And if you're watching online, I invite you maybe to take your phone or maybe grab a picture from your, on whatever is close by. And I want you to be able to hold on to that picture. But for those here, just quickly show the person beside you as to who this is an important person in my life. Now, as you hold on to that picture, do you have anyone in those pictures whose spiritual concerns and spiritual life you have concerns? Is there anybody in those pictures at this point where things are sort of shaky between them and God? If you do, I want to tell you something. You hope that someone in this world will care for that person. You hope that someone in their world is going to notice them and pray for them and do something to reach out to them. 
You hope that some church, some place in their world is not content that things are okay, but there's going to be a church in their area that's going to be creative, that's going to have compassion, and they'll be generous, and they'll take risks, and they'll explore open doors, and they will help that person, your person, that you love to find the door to God. Because everyone that you see is someone else's son or daughter. Behind every door that you drive past on your street or in your neighborhood, every person behind those doors is a person for whom Jesus died. A person who faces an eternal destiny. And the crucified one that we serve still comes to every heart and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The movement of the open door with God will drive us to more prayer. At least that is my hope. It will drive us to more prayer, more dependence upon him, deeper learning, and a greater joy that ever comes our way from being able to live within the, the comforts of a very small and comfortable life. The movement of God is still going. There's doors still being opened. The question becomes, do we want to pursue the doors that God opens for us? Amen.